0: We are in 2 Peter, again this morning. We're about to finish this letter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Last week, we talked about the Lord's return and how long we would have to wait. This morning, we're talking about the Lord's return and how we ought to wait. How do you wait? Um, Maybe you were in the group that went to Great America two Saturdays ago. Great America has a very distinct way of waiting, in lines. Um, But I would have to say that though I did not go, I would assume that there were probably people frequently on their phones, even as they're having discussions, The last time I was at Great America, before I got severe motion sickness and cannot return there again, (laughs) people didn't have phones. Yes, it was that long ago. And so people either had to talk or stare awkwardly at one another as they're kind of snaking through (laughs) on the way to the Eagle. You might have other ways of waiting at the airport. Maybe you feel like you're the person that always chooses the wrong line to wait in at the grocery store. Or maybe you're waiting for a child. Perhaps you're pregnant right now. Or you're the husband of someone who's pregnant. Perhaps you've been wanting to be pregnant, but that hasn't happened. That entails a different kind of waiting, a different kind of longing than just going on a roller coaster. Or maybe you're waiting for a spouse. Just over 21 years ago, I stood right here, waiting for Miss Natalie Bratton to come through those doors and down this aisle to stand right here. My dad, my father, was standing right there, and he married us on June 1st. 2001, but the nine months that we were engaged entailed waiting, and those waiting, that waiting period involved us doing some things like registering at Target, which can be tons of fun, (laughs) doing premarital counseling, things like that, but the waiting wasn't defined by those things that we do, it was more of just anticipation, nine months until we get married. Last week, as we talked about trusting the Lord and his timing and his return, we talked about the Lord doesn't keep time like us. The Lord is patient toward us. The Lord's return will surprise us. Peter was helping his church understand what they needed to know as they waited. And I ended last week's sermon with saying, what should, asking what should we do as we wait. And next week, we'll get more to the do. So last week was no. Next week will be do, kind of more like the registering at Target type stuff. But in the middle, this morning, as Peter's writing to his beloved and saying, he is coming and we're waiting, Peter's asking the question, what sort of people ought we to be. So know, be do. How do the beloved people of Christ, His bride, wait well for His return? Again, second Peter chapter three, verses 11 through 13. Let's pray. Ah, Lord, thank you that though we do long with expectation for you to return, You have not abandoned us. And in fact, you are here with us this morning. There will be one day when our faith turns to sight. But today, though we do not see you, would you give us faith in you? Open up your word to us, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to 11 through 13, and I'll just read the passage to orient you to where we are. we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the question for us this morning is this. How ought we wait well? I know we probably don't use the word ought very often, but I threw that in there just to kind of, well, it's from the passage. Let me just put it that way. It's right here. How ought we wait well? We ought wait well as... Waiters. Now, just in case you think I'm slipping into some Dr. Seussian language here, this is kind of what Peter does in this letter. You may have noticed as we've been preaching through it that he repeats phrases for the sake of emphasis. In chapter 2, verse 12, he talks about these false teachers being destroyed in their destruction and suffering wrong in their wrongdoing. He layers His words in such a way that it provides emphasis. He also talked about the scoffers scoffing in their scoffing, chapter 3, verse 3. So Peter has this descriptive repetition that I thought it would be good to lean into this morning. We wait well as waiters, we are waiters who are waiting. So here's the thing. You know that you can wait without really waiting. Okay, We were waiting for Haven's um, passport to come in. So we had done the aforementioned work in order to apply for that. But then it wasn't like, because we're not leaving for Canada for over a month, we weren't checking every day to make sure it was coming. We were just trusting that it was on his way. We were waiting, but we weren't waiting, waiting. Because you also know you can wait and be waiting. That was last summer when I got my application in late. And we ended up having to shave a day off of our trip to Canada because it didn't arrive until the first day that we should have been in Canada. Then we were constantly checking online for updates. We were waiting and we were waiting. This is what Peter's aiming for. A people who are defined by their waiting. He turns their defensive doubting question from earlier in chapter 3 of where is the promise of his coming into a waiting with anticipation. They've been waiting. Now he wants them to be waiting. And so for us this morning, four ways we ought to be waiting. Number one is this be waiting with awareness of what is passing away. Again, verse 11a. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, when will this dissolution happen? When all these things will be dissolved? Well, maybe a better question is first is, what is going to be dissolved? What has he just been talking about? In verse 10 he says, The heavenly bodies will be burned up, excuse me, and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things, he's wrapping up heavens and earth and all the things that are done on the earth, all of them are going to dissolve. This will happen on the coming of the day of the Lord, beginning of verse 10 the day of the Lord will come like a thief and introduce this dissolving like we've never known. I want you to notice this. Peter does not instruct them to wait for an earlier day, a rapture day, when his beloved will be taken away before the dissolving happens he's saying wait for this day this is the day to wait for it's similar to what jesus says in matthew 24 44. as he's speaking to his disciples he says the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect so he's putting in his disciples mind and all the disciples 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 all the way up until today saying to them, listen, disciples, be looking for my return. Don't necessarily be looking for a rescue operation and then things go south. He's saying, wait for the day of the Lord. With Christ coming, the heavens and the earth will pass away, as will the temporal accomplishments And our priorities are works that are done on the earth. As Tim read earlier from Isaiah 24, this is not new news in the Bible. In Isaiah 24, God through his prophet said the earth is going to be twisted and its inhabitants scattered. The moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed, because the Lord of hosts has come to reign. Listen to what Revelation 6 says. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. That's what Victoria read about in Matthew 24. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, sometimes the response to this is, well, this is just apocalyptic language. This is genre-specific in Revelation. But the thing is, John is trying to find a way to describe what he's actually seeing. And Matthew wrote down what Jesus actually said, as did Isaiah. And now Peter is not saying, so listen, it's going to be kind of like the stars are going to melt. No, he's saying the stars are going to melt. The earth and the heavens are going to be dissolved. You may know about a star named Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is, aside from our sun, the seventh brightest star that we can see from earth. It's a big one. It's, I think, like 30 times larger than our sun. It's also 500 million light years away from us well see since 2019 astronomers have been watching Betelgeuse because all of a sudden Betelgeuse dimmed like 40 percent dimmer than they had seen it and then just recently it got much brighter 50 50 percent brighter than it had been they're not exactly sure why this has happened But as I was reading about it, they were talking about the reality of Betelgeuse turning into a supernova. That this star will die. Now the astronomers are putting that out at like at least 1.5 million years from now, and then some are saying uh, actually it could be closer to a thousand. It's a pretty big span of maybe. <laughs> well, this is what we this is what we would see if it would happen. After one or two weeks, Betelgeuse would shine with about the same brightness as the full moon. Betelgeuse would then fade over the next several months but remain visible in the daytime for six to twelve months. At night, you should be able to see it with the naked eye for another one or two years. But after that, we would never see it again. Betelgeuse that is located in the constellation of Orion would forever lose its red sparkle. Now, because of its distance away from Earth, other than seeing it, we wouldn't really be affected. However, a very close supernova, closer than 30 light years away, would cause major problems. The cosmic rays would cause ozone destruction and dangerous UV levels on the earth. It could reduce ozone by half over a period lasting hundreds to thousands of years. This level is considered capable of causing an extinction event. But such a close supernova would be very rare and may happen only once per billion years. I don't read this to say Betelgeuse is coming or our sun is going to explode soon. I do say this because scientists are saying this is what would happen if it happened to our sun or a star close to us. It melting, it dying, would radically affect our earth. So could this happen? Could the Lord twist the earth? Certainly. Could the moon be confounded and the sun ashamed? Yes. Will the Lord bring judgment on the earth? Absolutely. But in so doing, he will do it precisely. He will do it in accordance with the promise that he already made to Noah that he would no longer ever again destroy the earth by water. Instead, this judgment would come by fire. And this promise is as sure as God's first promise to Noah to flood the earth. So, we ought to wait with awareness that this earth is going to pass away. The existence that we have experienced will pass away. Consider that dissolving of the heavens and the earth All the realities that we have known that God has created will one day dissolve. Jesus described this sort of waiting for the things of this life to dissolve as being sober. In Luke 21 34, he says, But watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Jesus wanted people to know that day is coming, He's coming. Be sober. We should consider the cares of this life that weigh down our hearts, that we are even waiting for. Even the best of things, if they are not eternal in nature, we hold them with open hands. They will not last. They will not last. Thus, our hearts must not be set on them instead of Christ. Last week in our members meeting, we talked for a short amount of time for some about some projects that we'd like to get done in our building here. That's good stewardship. It's taking care of what God has given us. And so, in saying we should be aware of things passing away, I'm not saying just like, throw it all up in the air. No, God calls us to steward his creation and what he has given us. But, even if we remodel the kids wing even if we get in ear monitors for our worship team those things are not going to last this building 114 years old at least this side of it will also burn the people that God has formed in his image here will not but the building will So let's be good stewards, but have open hands. We ought also to be waiting with an awareness of what will stay. In a world that will resolve, know that our lives won't, Christian, and live in agreement with the eternal life that is in Christ. Let's look back into the text again, second half of verse 11. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Do you see the connection he's making there? He's saying, since all this is going to dissolve, you need to be aware of the life trajectory, values, goals, ambition, And he says, because it's all going to pass, our lives ought to be lives of holiness and godliness. This is the stuff that lasts, is what Peter is saying. David Helm has a helpful definition of holiness in this regard. It's the fullness of life in an ungodly world. Back in 1 Peter, he refers to holiness and sanctification in a few different ways. So what does holiness look like? It means to be holy in all your conduct. You be holy, for I am holy. Be holy by showing sincere brotherly love to one another. You also show holiness by being subject to every human institution. By embracing suffering for the sake of the gospel. And by serving the family of god holiness has a on the street level quality to it you can't just say I'm holy and it not show also for godliness godliness he's referred to it already in chapter one and godliness you could think of it like this god likeness not that we are little gods but that we are meant to rightly reflect the image of God. And in chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he has given us all things that we need for life and godliness. That should blow our minds, the fact that people who feel ungodly and unholy so much of the time in Christ can actively ask him for increasing holiness and godliness. I've already talked about how Peter has some um, linguistic gymnastics that he puts forth in his letter. This is another place here. Because when he says holiness and godliness, those are actually in the plural. So he's saying this. What sort of people ought you to be in lies of holinesses and godlinesses? I think he's trying to get at two things. One, this is a corporate reality. It's holiness and Godliness among his church among the beloved but he's also saying this as the verses in first peter point to the eternal stuff of life holiness and godliness we should be saying don't forsake the world but instead say god how would you have my holiness and godliness inhabit all of the things that are passing away So we're not retreating into our holiness huddles, but we are saying, God, you've made me holy, and though I know this world is passing away, how can your holinesses be multiplied in every aspect and facet of my life? And so it gives us great encouragement to say, when I go to school, when I go to work, the challenges that come into my life, the things that I feel like, man, I sure am glad this is going to pass away, No, pause. It will, but until then, you ought to wait. You ought to wait with the awareness that holiness and godliness will not pass away. So Lord, how do you want me to infuse your holiness and godliness in the situations that you providentially have put me into? Holiness is... (laughs) <laughs> Holinesses and godlinesses are about us living eternal lives in a world that will dissolve one day. And this requires great wisdom. Because God, in His grace, has made us people that are made for eternity but inhabit time and space. So, we approach that time and space and asking God, how then do you want me to live? I'm going to do something a little different and take a distinct sidebar as application here. Because there is an area in life that we must walk in wisdom through. We must think with wisdom about and trust that God's wisdom can lead us well. And that's specifically as we, as Christians, walk through the month of June. Pride There's an article by Pastor Jonathan Lehman that was very helpful for me personally thinking through it, pastorally thinking through it, and I've kind of cut it up a little bit, highlighted it a bit, and I'm going to read those highlights. It's fair, it's balanced, and most of all, it's wisdom from the Word. Hear this. He's going to give seven ways to walk with wisdom in Pride Month. Number one, in everything you do, love. Mark 12, 29 through 31, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. In everything you do, love. Loving God and loving our neighbor should animate everything we say and do in this month particularly. We stand up for truth. For love's sake. We swim upstream. For love's sake. We share the gospel. For love's sake. We say, no, I can't do that at work. For love's sake. We turn the right cheek to those who strike us on the left. For love's sake. Number two. Distinguish God's love from the world's love. John 14:15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In the Bible, love always works together with righteousness, obedience, and truth. But today's culture has completely swallowed hell's view of love. Love means whatever you want it to mean. People might use the words, God is love, but what they really mean is love is God. That is, our views of love, whatever they may happen to be, define all reality and morality for us. Yet that's not real love. It's a fake and a liar. Real love always points people to the God who is love. And anything that draws people away from this righteous and holy God is not love, but is a deceiver. Number three, never lie. Exodus 20:16. You shall not bear false witness or lie against your neighbor. Many situations at school or work will place you into situations where lying might seem like the easy road out of a sticky dilemma. But be reminded that Christians should not lie. Short-term gains never outweigh long-term compromises. Scripture's positive command to speak the truth in love doesn't mean we have to speak up at every moment in which we could. Sometimes silence is acceptable and appropriate. Yet Christians must never lie. Verse 5, never affirm evil. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful work of, works of darkness, but instead expose them. And Romans 1.32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And everyday rationale Christians offer for going with the cultural flow is, well, not everyone here is a Christian, and we shouldn't impose our morality on them. That counsel can be correct sometimes. Yet, just as you should never lie so you should never participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. And you should never give approval to anything that provokes God's judgment. Just because your classmates or colleagues decided to to approve sin doesn't mean you should put your hand to doing the same. Abstain, pull back, keep your hands off anything that might commend sin and provoke God's end-time judgment. Number six, remember what you were but are no longer by the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, some of us. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, sometimes our moral compass gets a little wobbly. For all of us wobblers, Paul's words here set the record straight and puts steel in our spines. It draws clear moral lines and also reminds us of the gospel. Remember, we will struggle with the temptations to do the very things Paul lists here, such as sexual immorality, greed, or reviling others. Some will struggle with feelings of attraction toward the same sex, or even like they're in the wrong body. For this latter group, put yourself in their shoes for a second if they would only tweak their theology, they would be hailed by heroes in our culture. Instead, we must hail them as heroes, since they're exercising extreme faith to follow Christ. Remind everyone of God's law, but also remind them of the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We're no better than anyone on the outside because we're all here this morning. It's only by his mercy and grace that we are. Our worth and value and righteousness and hope is vicarious, imputed from Christ. What a gracious and loving Savior he is. Lastly, do not pass judgment on one another. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. We must consider three kinds of judging during times like Pride Month. First, we don't want to wrongly judge what's right and wrong, saying what is wrong is right and what is right is wrong, as with the false prophets in the Old Testament who said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Second, which is another version of the first, we don't want to overlook our own sins while condemning others. As with the Pharisee in Luke 18 who prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like that other man. Third, we don't want to wrongly condemn our brothers and sisters when our consciences draw different conclusions amidst some of these tough situational dilemmas so often the path to apostasy is not denial of the faith per se, but a fracturing of church unity under pressure that slowly erodes faith. All throughout the year, but especially in the month of June, if you need wisdom, reach out to an elder if you find yourself in a brutal dilemma at work, or at school, or you're in, your, in your family. When the challenging work or school dilemma comes, it won't always be clear how all of the above texts apply. And sometimes it might feel like one text commends one path while another ten- text commends another path. Choosing the best course of action will require much wisdom as we study the scriptures and discuss our dilemmas together. Thank you for granting me that time to read. Part of what happens pastorally is we wanna lead our people in wisdom. And we know that we need wisdom in all manners of life, and particularly in this context as well. Holinesses and godlinesses are about us living eternal lives that look at what our culture says as everlasting and almost impenetrable. When we walk our blocks, we see, wow, I don't know how this got to where it is, and I don't really know how it could ever fall or change. God says one day all will be exposed. Yet we look forward to a better city, an eternal one that we are waiting for. Jesus described this waiting with awareness of what will stay as being awake and praying. Luke 21, 36, he says, But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. You might remember I just read from Revelation 6 and the question is asked who can stand before the Lamb? Jesus says stay awake and pray. Trust in me and you will stand before me. Third, be waiting with hastening. Chapter 3 verse 12 waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. In some sense, brothers and sisters, we participate in hastening God's return for Christ to come back. How could this be? Not exactly sure. But let's take a swing at it. First of all, our hearts can be stirred to pray with longing to see Jesus. The martyred saints under the altar in Revelation saying, how, Lord, how long, O Lord, please come? Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 saying, Maranatha, O Lord, come. So it could be a prayerful expectation. It can also be heart stirred to see Jesus' conditions met for the end to come. To which you might say, Conditions? What conditions? Are you talking about? In Matthew 24, listen to what Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse that Victoria read a part of earlier. He says to his disciples, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now note the stair steps here. And then many will fall away and betray one another, And hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. 2 Peter. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Did you catch that stair step there towards looking towards the end when Jesus will return? And he says the gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed throughout the whole world, and then the end will come. Peter may be saying here, hastening involves the proclamation of the gospel to all nations, as it goes out and it reaches farther and farther to the quarters of the world where the angels will go out to the four winds and gather Christ's elect, that would hasten the day of the Lord. It could also agree with chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance that condition of everyone who before the foundation of the world he predestined to know him, predestined to belong to him all of those people will be saved they will reach repentance so this hastening is Peter saying, look, but also actively seek to be gospel people. Jesus describes this waiting with hastening hearts for him as being witnesses. He tells the apostles in Acts 1.8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of of the earth. In Matthew 28 he tells them, "All authority has been given unto me. Now go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching me, teaching them all that I have commanded you." Peter intends for his beloved to get active in the gospel You may not be aware of what happened on Friday. Jim, right there, he was working on, as he often does, working on a grade-all. A grade-all is the thing that scoops up the blacktop from old alleys. That's what Jim does, and he does it well. He was on the job for the last day to finish this alley project they had been working on. As he arrived Friday morning with his all, he saw the first truck waiting for him to deliver the asphalt into the back of the truck. And he saw that the flatbed of the truck was raised up and it was touching electric wires. Jim gets out of the truck and goes to check things out. And all of a sudden, the hydraulic tank on this truck in front explodes. And Jim was thrown. 10 feet back from this explosion. He went to the ER and was released later on that afternoon. He's got a nice size contusion on his chest. You don't have to show it to us, Jim. That's okay. <laughs> but I want you to understand, if Jim had stayed in his grade all, you probably would have been okay. Protected. Distant from this hydraulic tank. He got out and was three feet from this thing. His position changed from in the great hall to there, next to where the explosion was about to happen. He had no idea it was going to happen. And God mercifully saved his life. Yeah, we can clap. (laughs) But the illustration isn't done yet. Jim's co-worker, Ali,
1: was the worker
0: who had the truck that was touching the power lines. When Jim got out of his truck, Ali was down underneath his truck, checking the air brakes and some other things, the pressure that was down there. Jim, getting out of his truck, prompted Ali to get out from underneath his truck, so they were both standing a few feet away before the explosion happened. Ali would have died if Jim had not repositioned himself and Ali responded to his reposition. Ali had eye surgery yesterday. He caught a lot of the blast in his face, whereas Jim caught it mostly in his chest. What I want to illustrate here is that difference between awareness of what is passing away and awareness of what stays. God, in his mercy, had Jim arrive and go to a place where he put himself ultimately in harm's way, but ultimately also for the good of Ali. When it comes to navigating things like Pride Month, or other things that are delicate and are difficult in family life, or work life, or school life, If we just kind of go with the flow, Ali is still under the truck. If we say, God, give me wisdom, position me as you would position me, even if if it means I'm going to take a blow to the chest, I will do so for the sake of someone else maybe seeing my repositioning and leaving a position of sure death even though they don't know an explosion is coming. As witnesses for the gospel, let us be at least open to hastening the day by just being people of the truth. As the Lord gives you opportunities to Follow him and he repositions you. Maybe there are some who will follow and know Christ. Be saved from the judgment of God and join us for eternity. We're to be aware of things that are passing away. Aware of what will stay. we be We are waiting with hastening. And finally, we should be waiting for our eternal home. Second half of 12, concluding in 13. Because of which, this being the day of God, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter's saying, be waiting for home. Our hearts are so attached to this small h home. He's saying it's not your home. He's promised. He promised to Philip, don't be afraid. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you're going to join me there someday. This is not all about just the earth and the heavens melting. It is about the earth and the heavens melting in preparation for the new heavens and new earth being created and delivered. That our groom has gone away to make a place for us, and he will come back to take us, his bride, home. So we don't have to fear if we are in Christ the tribulations to come or even the dissolving of the earth. Instead, we look forward, counting his promise as a promise. He will come back for his people, even as he ascended into heaven following his death and his resurrection. That day is still to come. May we be waiting for home. And may the Lord give us opportunities to welcome as many to go with us as he will. Would you stand? I'm going to read the first four verses of Revelation 21:4, and then we will sing. 21-1-4 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Amen.